You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Hey, thanks, Todd. Well, good morning. It's, uh, my name's Ross. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm, uh... I'm super excited. Today we begin a new series in the book of Galatians, and I'll tell you one of the uh, kind of cool things about it. So this year, 2017, is the 500th anniversary of the what many people date or mark as the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. So in uh, 1517 uh, is the year that Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the a door of the church in Wittenberg, which uh, many mark as the moment that kind of launched the uh, Reformation of the church. And one of the fuels of the Reformation of the church was Luther's study of Galatians, and really the, the church's study of Galatians. And so many things have happened throughout the history of the church. Uh, when the book of Galatians was studied, Paul's letter to the churches at Galatia have been studied, and so I look forward to see what God may do uh, with us as a church as we study uh, Paul's letter to the Galatians. And so, to begin this study, I want to tell you a story. Um, begin the study by telling you a story about my mom almost drowning in her brand new car 20 years ago. So, to my knowledge, it was the first time my mom had ever had a brand new car in her life. She'd had it for two days. And she's driving in a rainstorm in Abilene, Texas. And so in Abilene, when it rains, the streets are the drainage system in Abilene. And so how it works is it rains, uh, the streets are the drainage system, they flow into the creeks and then it out into the creeks uh, out of the city. And so if it rains too fast, too hard, uh, the streets will flood because it can't get into the creeks fast enough. If it rains too hard, then the creeks begin to flood because it can't get out of the city fast enough. She's sitting at a light at Barrow and 14th. Um, and the light turns green. The water had risen faster than she knew it was rising. She goes across the intersection, and the water lifts her car up and begins to take it down the intersection and down the intersection into Catclaw Creek before she even knows what happens. And so there she is. Now, my mom is not a, not a big woman. She's a powerful woman, <laughs> but she's not real strong, Okay. And so she's sitting there in this moment of panic, and all these things are running through her mind, and she's realizing she's not strong enough to open the door against the current. If she rolls the window down, the water's going to flood, and she's not strong enough to swim against the current, and she really thinks she's going to die. And so this moment of panic sets in. Well, in the very next moment, confusion sets in because she hears the glass of her window break, and she turns and she sees this gigantic figure standing outside her car. And who's standing there is a guy named Andre Patterson. Now, see, you don't know who Andre Patterson is, and you don't know for two reasons. One, you didn't grow up in Abilene, Texas, and the other is because you weren't a basketball fan in the 90s, okay? Andre Patterson, 6'9", 245 pounds, when he was a senior in high school, was a uh, McDonald's All-American. He played for Bobby Knight at Indiana, and in 1998 was drafted by the Timberwolves, number 17 in the NBA draft, and averaged 12 points a game in his career. But, most importantly, although my mom never, to my knowledge, saw him score a point, 
he saved my mom's life. In that moment, he lent to my mother all his height, all his weight, all his strength, pulled her out of the car, and drug her across Catclaw Creek to safety and saved her life. He rescued her from drowning. There was nothing that she could do to save herself. In fact, in that moment, it was all Andre, no Mary. In fact, that's exactly how she tells the story. That's the only story to tell, honestly. It would be ridiculous to tell any other story. In fact, it would be laughable. There's no believable version of that story where my mom helps Andre save her. In fact, my guess would be it would have been easier if she'd been a little unconscious, I mean, to tell the truth. Well, that's exactly how Paul feels about the gospel. He was rescued by Jesus, and there is no believable version of the gospel. In fact, there's no other version of the gospel where he helped Jesus save his life. In fact, that's the heart of the gospel. Jesus has done everything. We contribute nothing to salvation. We don't add anything to it. There's nothing that we do. There's nothing we can do to help save ourselves. There's nothing we can do to make ourselves more worthy to be saved. Let me say it another way. We can't live in a way that will make God take notice of us. We, we can't live in a way that will make God more interested in us. It's not a matter of the things we do. It's not a list of the things that we don't do that will make us more or likely to be noticed by God. The gospel can't be added to and it can't be taken away from. And Paul is going to spend six chapters with a white hot passion saying that very thing to the churches in Galatia. So this morning what I want to do is I want to look at the first five verses real quick. I want to just introduce you to Paul. I want to introduce you to the churches at Galatia and I want to introduce you to the issue that's going on. Sort of what's, what's going on in Galatia that's got Paul so riled up that he sits down in A.D. 48 to pen this, this letter to these churches. So if you'll read with me, I'm going to start in, in verse 1. We're going to just read five verses, and then we'll, um, uh, we'll go back through them real quickly. Here, here's, what, here's how it starts. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. 
So Paul begins the letter in the usual way. Letters begin in the time. He, he, the author's identified and the recipients are identified. But then usually what happens in this first few verses is there's a, there's a thanksgiving. There's a, oh, saints, I'm so thankful for you, and some flowery, gentle, pastoral language. In fact, in all of the other letters that Paul writes, there's something gentle and something pastoral and something seemingly patient. But there's not in this letter. In fact, Paul comes right out of the gates and he's full throttle. The pedal is to the metal and he's angry with the churches in Galatia. And what's surprising is, is, is you, you, you wouldn't think about it that way. I mean, let's just think about the church at Corinth for just a second. The church at Corinth is a wicked church. The church at Corinth is doing terrible things. The church at Corinth probably, if, I mean, so the church at Corinth, I mean, if they were in Tyler, Texas, we'd be like, ooh, that church. Mm. Like if somebody transferred from the church at Corinth, and they were in Tyler, and they came over here to Bethel, we'd be like, ugh, really? You came from that church? Well, you probably need to meet with two or three elders before we can have you come in here. So have you ever dated your mom? You know, that kind of thing, we'd ask. I mean, the church at Corinth was doing bad stuff. I mean, they got drunk at communion. I mean, they did all kinds of stuff. You know how Paul starts out the letter to the church at Corinth? Saints, brothers, I'm so thankful for you. That's how he starts, gentle, pastoral. Listen, the church at Corinth was struggling with their Christian walk, their walk with Christ. They were struggling in their Christian life. They were failing. They were, they were, they were struggling with what it meant to, to walk in grace. They, they were... They were struggling, and Paul was patient with that. In Galatia, the issue was their understanding of who Christ was. No patience for that. Because what was at stake in Galatia was eternity. And so Paul's feeling urgent about it. And that's why there's no time for thanksgiving in Paul's mind in this letter. One of my seminary professors who spent his life studying Paul, he says this, Paul writes this when he is an erupting volcano, and it should be read that way. Just take a quick look with me. I'll give you a little flavor of what I'm talking about. In verse 6, he, he, he says this. He makes this accusation. I am astonished, he says, that you're so quickly deserting him who called you. I can't believe it. In verse 8, look at what he says in, in chapter 1. Even if an angel from heaven should preach, he should be condemned. Paul basically says in verse 8, if an angel shows up and preaches something else, I condemn that angel from heaven. Paul's, Paul's in the business now of the possibility of condemning angels. In chapter 13, he reminds them of his violent past. I always read that, and I think of like Mel Gibson's character in Lethal Weapon, you know, Martin Riggs. He's like a good cop, you know, but he's a little unstable. 
It's like, you remember me? In 2.11, chapter 2, verse 11, he's not afraid to call Peter out for being a hypocrite. He's like, you want to know who I am? I'm the guy. I'm the guy who calls popes out. That's who I am. I ruin dinner parties. In 3.1, he says, Galatians, who cast a satanic spell on you? Is literally what he says. And go to chapter 5, verse 12 real quick. I'll show you one more and then we'll get back to it. But chapter 5, verse 12, just so you see this. Galatians, by the way, is rated PG-13. Your elementary school kids can't go see Galatians at the theater without a parent. Verse 11, just look at 11 and then 12. But, I, but if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you... Circumcision is the whole, one of the whole issues of the false apostles here. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves, is what he says. Which is probably one of the most sanitized ways to translate what Paul is saying. Think of the word amputate or castrate. Those are better words. That's the mood Paul's in. I wish they, they're so into circumcision, why don't they just go ahead and cut it off? That's what I say. That's what Paul's saying. Paul's angry when he's writing this. The reason I'm taking the time to show you this is because I think sometimes we get the idea that there's just not much at stake here. I mean, we're not supposed to get too excited. In fact, I mean, that's the goal, right? I mean, we come to church not to get too excited. I mean, we're not supposed to get too worked up. I mean, isn't that the goal? We're not supposed to get too worked up or too excited about anything. But that's not the way Paul feels about it. So, so what, what is Paul so upset about? Well, in verse 2, he, he, the letter is, is, is addressed, he says, to the churches in Galatia. Well, these are churches that Paul planted on his first missionary journey. You, you can read about this in Acts chapter 13, Acts chapter 14. There, he and Barnabas, they're sent out from the church at Antioch, this first missionary journey. They're laid hands on, they get sent out, and they when they go into these towns, uh, Derby and Lystra and Antioch, Pisidia, they go into these places, and the Jews, they go into the synagogues, and the Jews hear uh, the gospel of Jesus for the very first time. And, and they hear about Jesus, and they love it. They say, man, we want you to come back and hear about it. But what also happens is that the Gentiles, they hear the message. And the Gentiles, hearing the gospel of Jesus... They come to faith in Jesus, and they're saved. And this is the turning point of the church. In fact, it's almost the breaking point of the church. The gospel, it says in Acts 13, Acts 14, begins to spread through the whole region of southern Galatia. The Gentiles were coming to faith in Jesus, and the Jews were losing their minds. And the reason is, is because the Gentiles were coming to faith in Jesus just as they were, as Gentiles. They weren't becoming Jews first. They weren't converting to Judaism. They weren't being circumcised. They weren't observing the ancient Jewish laws. They were just plain old Gentiles believing and trusting in Jesus. And so in Acts chapter 14, what they do is the Jews stone Paul 
They drag him out of the city. They leave him for dead, but he didn't die. He lived, and he gets up, and he goes back to Antioch where he was sent out as a missionary, goes back for the missions conference potluck, fundraising, shows him all the slideshows of his missionary journey. So this is where I was stoned. I mean, you kind of hope there was a good offering that night. I mean, right? Then right after that, in Acts 15, they have a council. It's a church hearing about the situation. And the question at the hearing is, do, Jew, do the Gentiles have to become Jews to receive the gospel? And the answer is decided clearly, no. And here's the conclusion. Being Jewish isn't what saves us. Being circumcised isn't what saves us. It never was. It could never save us. We're saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. And the Gentiles are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. Period. And Galatians is written either just before the council in Acts 15, or just after it, probably around A.D. 48. It's Paul's first letter that he writes. So notice again in verse 1, he says, I'm an apostle, not from men or through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So after Paul plants the churches in Galatia, some Judaizers, these are Jews probably from Jerusalem, they come in behind Paul. They begin to preach in these churches. They're very likable guys. They're polished. They come from Jerusalem. They've got great resumes. They, they knew the apostles personally. They knew Peter and James and John. They'd heard them preach. They, they'd been in meetings with them. They, they boasted of how well they knew them. They, 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 they claimed that they were there on the authority of Jerusalem. And so they showed up and they said, hey, you, you guys have a really nice church here. We're impressed. But we notice that you're missing a few things. And we're not surprised you're missing a few things. After all, your church was planted by Paul. And you know about Paul, don't you? I mean, he, he really isn't an apostle. I mean, he isn't one of the 12. I mean, he doesn't even know the 12. In fact, I'm not so sure he told you, but he, he kind of has what we call a, a past. I mean, we're not into spreading rumors or anything, but... He used to kill Christians. So he's kind of a shady character. Anywho, there are some things he left out of the deal. He didn't, I mean, he, he told you all about Jesus, and that's wonderful because we love Jesus. He's a wonderful Jew. He's a marvelous teacher. He's our, he's our most beloved and greatest rabbi. I mean, after all, we are Christians. And in here's, but here's what Paul left out. So on the table in front of you, you'll find a copy of the Torah, and, and so you need to memorize all of it. In addition, tomorrow afternoon, we'll begin circumcisions. Oh, I know, they're not as bad as you think. Also, beginning today, we've brought along a dietitian. There's a lot of things you can't eat anymore. And also, we have a tailor with us. Some of your clothes will have to go. But here's the good news. I think there's a chance for all of you. I, mean, I, I think there's a really good chance 
there's a really good chance that you can know and feel God's love. I mean, there's a really good chance you could come you can become righteous. I mean, you can become a real Christian. I mean, you've heard about Jesus, what he's done, but now, now it's time to get serious, and it's important to understand your part. It takes a little work. It takes a little sacrifice. Sometimes it feels hard. Sometimes you'll feel like you don't want to. Sometimes you'll wonder if it's worth it, but in those moments, just remember if Jesus could endure the sacrifice of the cross, you can endure these sacrifices. That was the gospel they were preaching. And they began to undermine the message of Paul's gospel by undermining Paul's authority. Now listen. That message, that's not very far off from things I've heard. Jesus is great. I'm glad you hear the gospel, and then now it's time for you to get serious. And here are the things you need to do. And there's a real chance you can become a good Christian. It's time to get to work. So Paul says, listen, I, I want to be very clear here from the beginning. I am an apostle. That didn't come from man. Didn't come through man. I didn't appoint myself. I wasn't appointed by others. Here's the deal. I was called by Jesus himself on the Damascus road. Jesus, who was raised from the dead. I saw him. I was blinded by him. I know him. First hand. And in verse 2, he says, and all the brothers who are with me, he's not alone. And that means the readers aren't either. Paul's not a lone ranger theologian. He's, all the brothers are there. All the brothers are ready to go to the mat. Everybody's suited up. Your freedom concerns all of us. Grace and peace, that's theology we're all going to fight for. You want to be a dispensationalist? That's okay. You want to be a covenant theologian? That's okay. Sing praise songs instead of hymns? That's okay. You want to baptize babies or not baptize babies? Uh, okay. I'm not so much worried about that. But if you change the gospel, if you add to it, you take away from it, and I catch wind of that, we're all suited up for that. That's what he's saying. Then in verse 3, look at what he says. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. So these two words embrace the whole of Christianity. Grace forgives sin and peace stills the conscience. Two words, grace and peace. I mean, it contains a summary of all of Christianity. Grace contains a forgiveness of sins and a joyful peace and a quiet conscience. But, but peace is impossible unless sin has first been forgiven. See, listen, what happens is the law accuses 
and terrifies the conscience on account of sin. And the sin that the conscience feels, it can't be removed by self-help. It can't be removed by resolutions or enrichment or positivity or vows or any other work that you might try to do. In fact, what happens is where your work increases, sin increases all the more. I'll give you an example. We don't talk about it this way because we've diminished what we talk about sin. We changed the way we talk about sin. We've sanitized it. We put it into the category of self-management. So let me back up and say it this way. Let's just talk about peace for a second. We're all on a journey for peace, if we're honest. I mean, some of us are searching for it. We're on a personal mecca, if we can say it that way. I mean, the answers to life's problems... We're seeking them. I mean, we all want answers. I mean, humanity is rubbernecking for the answers to life. Change, modification, betterment, enrichment, all of those are failed endeavors of the human experience. And I'll just give you one example. So let me pick on this because we're just fresh. It's, it's New Year's resolutions, for instance. Now, I'm not against New Year's resolutions. I think you, they're great. And we're 15 days into them, so... Three of you are still going strong. But I looked it up. Resolution. Here it is. Defined as a firm decision to do or not to do something, an intention, an aim, a commitment, a pledge, a promise, and it's for the purpose of effecting positive change in our life. And so why do you do that? Well, I'll give you, so here's reasons. So we weigh too much, or we drink too much, or we sleep too much, or you watch TV too much, or the quality of your marriage has deteriorated, or the quantity of time you spend with your children have diminished, or you're not happy, or you're not satisfied, or you're bored, or you're restless, or you don't like the way you look, or you feel out of control, or you want more control, or you're broke, or you want more. I mean, the list is endless, right? I mean, you want peace like a river, and you know you don't have it. And there's no end to strategies for change. There's a book about everything. There's no end to our search for that thing that will bring us peace. This is not new. Pascal said, all men seek happiness, all of them, which he in vain tries to fill from all his surroundings. But these are inadequate because the infinite abyss can only be fulfilled by an infinite and immutable object that is to say, only by God himself. Let's bring it into the 21st century. Matt Honan gives his report of the world's largest consumer technology trade show. He's there to comment on the world's largest technology, all the greatest technologies out there, 2012. He's there to comment on it. He's one of the leading technology guys, and he's there to write about it. This is what he said. This was his big thing. There's a hole in my heart dug deep by advertising and envy and a desire to see a thing new and different and beautiful, a place within me that is empty, and I want to fill it up. The hole makes me think electronics can help, and of course they can, at least for a while, at least until they're obsolete, at least until they're garbage. Electronics are talismans that ward off spiritual vacuum of modernity. I'm sure his editor was thrilled with that, by the way. And yet the hundreds of comments underneath of people saying, thank you for saying that. 
I thought it was just me. We want peace. We know something's broken inside of us, and yet we work and we work and we work and we work and we work to try to change and change and change. And the more we work and sweat to save ourselves from what the underlying problem going on in our life is the sin, the worse we are off. And there's no way to remove the sin, the power of sin, the effect of sin, the result of sin, except by grace. We want peace. It comes only through grace. Listen, the, the words are easy. But the hardest possible thing to be surely persuaded of in our hearts is that we have forgiveness of sins and peace with God by grace alone, entirely apart from any other means than the grace of God. Let me make the point even more clearly because Paul does. Look at what he says in verse 4. Speaking of Jesus who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Notice he says, he gave himself for our sins. So if our sins could be removed or covered or even lessened in degree by the things that we did. So, so if the strategies to make ourselves better could move the needle at all, then why did Jesus have to give himself for our sins? And the answer is, is they can't. Our sins are so infinite and so great and so invincible that nothing in the world or the whole history of the world can make a satisfaction for even one of them. So we see how high the cost of the ransom of sin. Sin's price, sin's consequent. What sin demands for satisfaction is nothing short of the blood of the Son of God. It's the only thing that brings victory over sin. See, I don't think we fully understand the power of sin. I mean, the seriousness of sin. Most of the time, I think we're indifferent to it. We think it's trivial or it's nothing. I mean, it might bring a little remorse a little guilt. You might feel the weight or the force of it, but we think, hey, look, I'll do a little good work, a little good deed, that'll remove it. But if you look at verse 4, if you feel, if you feel the impact of verse 4, we see that the infinite greatness of the price of sin, it should stab us awake at the power and the force and the seriousness and the deadliness of sin. That sin is so great that nothing can remove sin. Except that the Son of God would give himself for it. That's terrifying. There's nothing you can do. You can go after peace all day long. 
You'll never find it. But there's also something comforting in this same phrase, and I don't want you to miss it. Notice Paul writes, our sins. Luther, Martin Luther points out in his commentary, his commentary, by the way, is a work of art. So if you want to study Galatians over the next weeks, go on Amazon, order a copy of Luther's commentary. You probably get it for 99 cents, I don't know. It's, it's on public domain if you want to read it out there. Charles Wesley came to faith reading Martin Luther's commentary. He said, never understood the gospel, he said, until I read it. And it just broke open for me. It's, 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 it's unbelievable. In fact, he called Galatians, Martin Luther called Galatians, he said, it's my Catherine. Catherine was the name of his wife. I don't know how Catherine felt about that, but... I'm not going to do that, but I love Galatians, all right? A, like I said, fuel of the Reformation. Here's what Luther says, all right? This is interesting. And I read this to Leslie last night. I, I didn't do a great job of reading it. She was like, you're not going to read that, are you? And I'm like, yes. All right, so here we go. <laughs> so hang with me, all right? I just, this is so great, all right? And then I'll try to make sure you, you hear it, all right? He says... Pay careful attention to Paul's every word and note particularly this pronoun, our. For we find very often in scriptures that their significance consists in the proper application of pronouns, which also convey vigor and force. It's easy for you to say and believe that Christ, the Son of God, was given for the sins of Peter and Paul and other saints who seem to have been worthy of this grace. But it's very hard for you who regard yourself as unworthy of this grace to say and believe from your heart that Christ was given for your many great sins. In general, therefore, and without the pronoun, it's easy to praise and exalt the blessings of Christ extravagantly, namely, that Christ was given for sins, but for the sins of other men who are worthy. But when it comes to applying this pronoun our, there our weak nature and reason is thrown back, does not dare approach God or promise itself that it is to receive such a great treasure freely. Therefore, it refuses to have anything to do with God, lest it's pure and sinless first. Accordingly, even though it reads or hears this sentence, who gave himself for our sins, or something similar, it does not apply this pro pronoun our to itself. It applies it to others who are worthy and holy, and decides to wait until it has been made worthy by its own works. Did you hear what he said? That you can hear it, you can hear the gospel all your life and say, yes, Jesus died for sins. I know that he died for sins. He gave his life for sins, for their sins, for those that are worthy. But he didn't, he didn't give his life for my sins. I mean, not yet. And so we hold back and we say, okay, I'm going to make myself worthy to have been given his, my life for sins. So, so I'm going to clean myself up a little bit. I'm going to make myself worthy. I'm going to try to make myself sinless. I'm going to have some resolutions and I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to do better this time. And so I'm going to get myself right and then I'm going to then come closer to God. I'm going to then present myself to Jesus. And to the degree that we do not claim 
our sins in it, that we don't come just as we are, stained and filthy sinners that we are, we do not understand the gospel. To the degree we try to add one ounce of work before we come, we don't get it. Because Paul is going to say in verse 5, to whom be the glory forever and ever. You see, it's God through His Son Jesus who rescues us. And there's no version of the story that can be told where we help Him rescue us. We don't share in the glory. He gets all the glory. If salvation is God's doing from beginning to end, His calling, His plan, His actions, His work, then He deserves all the glory all the time. And we want it that way. To Him be all the glory. And this is what Paul's fighting for with the Galatians. As we close, let me just ask you a couple of questions. It's sort of a litmus test to see where you might misunderstand the gospel. And we all do it someplace. We, we all struggle with it. This isn't the gospel. Is it something you hear and then put aside and go, okay, I'm, I'm moving on to the bigger doctrines now. The gospel, man, we need it every day. Every day we need it. All day. We've got to remind ourselves of it. Remind each other of it. So, this list, it comes from Jerry Bridges. He has this book, uh, Transforming Grace. I, I'm taking these directly from him. You know you don't understand the gospel when. So here, here's a list. When you live with a vague sense of God's disapproval. So you think that God's frowning at you. You think he's a grumpy dad. Think he's always mad and let down. You don't understand grace. You don't understand grace if you feel sheepish bringing your needs before him when you just failed. You, you, you blew it. You, you did that sin you've repeated 10,000 times and so you think you, you can't go to him. You don't understand grace. If you think of grace as something that makes up the difference between the best that you can do and what he expects from you, you don't understand grace. You don't understand grace if you feel you deserve an answered prayer because of your hard work and your sacrifice. I mean, you got up, you prayed for two hours, you read Jeremiah in one setting, you serve at church, you, you do so much for him, he owes you. You don't understand grace. You don't understand grace if you assume that you've sinned so many times, you've used up all your credit of forgiveness. You've, you've sinned your sin, you know, the one you're good at. You've done it over and over and over, and there's no way that God can forgive you this time. You've used up all your credit. You, you don't understand grace. You, you don't understand grace if you feel more confident before God, if you've been faithful with your quiet times, prayer, witnessing. You just get a speed pass right to God, not because of Jesus' performance, but because of your performance. 
you don't understand grace. You don't understand grace if you can't honestly say that you see yourself as blameless in his eyes. You feel dirty, you feel ashamed, you, you feel like when God looks at you, he sees a dirty, filthy, no good sinner. You don't understand grace. You don't understand grace if you fear that the day may not go as well because you missed your quiet time or you overslept or you didn't have time to read and pray and, and, and then your whole day is going to be ruined all because of what you didn't do. You don't understand grace. You don't understand grace if you assume that you can do something to make him love you more or less. You think you can do things and he'll love you more, and if you mess up, his love for you begins to diminish. You don't understand grace. If, if any of those resonate with you, there's a, if, there's a place in where you fully haven't grasped the depth of the gospel. There's a place of misunderstanding of the depth of the gospel. And that misunderstanding comes with it. Misery and confusion... And left unattended will bring spiritual ruin. And that, that's what Paul is fighting for in the Galatians. Listen, that's what, we, that's what we're going to fight for. You can't earn grace. It has to be experienced through faith in Christ's work on the cross. That's the gospel message. That's the message of Galatians. If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, thanks for the word of Paul, through your spirit, inspired by your spirit, to the churches at Galatia. Thanks for Paul's passion. Thank you, Father, for preserving this letter. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you for the complete and sufficient and satisfying work of your son, Jesus. that he's done it all. Father, thank you for your love, your grace, and your peace. Help us to fully grasp this over the next weeks. Pray this the only way we can in the name of your son Jesus and by the power of your spirit. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.